Good morning, everyone. It, it is great to see you today. So before we get into studying God's word, I just wanted to announce an exciting opportunity to serve our community that is coming up in just under three weeks. I'm sure that many of you are familiar with the Fredericton Homeless Shelters and how they provide a safe haven to people who are finding it difficult to find sustainable housing. On Saturday, June 11th, they're planning to repaint the inside of their St. John house, which is the men's shelter, and we get to help them do it. We are going to be at the St. John house from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m., and lunch will be provided by the shelter staff. Now, we have a goal of getting 20 volunteers out there, but the staff have confirmed that they can take as many people as we can provide. So, I don't want to say let's make them regret saying that, but uh, we're just going to go ahead and knock that goal right out of the park. Now, this op opportunity is open to everyone. So, as long as you can paint, please sign up either at the link on the screen or by coming to see me in the lobby after service. I look forward to sprucing up the St. John house with you and making it a nicer living environment for the people residing there. Let's pray this morning. Heavenly Father, Thank you for this time and this place that we get to gather together to worship your name, to come to know you better through your word. And thank you, God, for the priceless gift that is your word to us. Thank you that through it we can come to know and see who you are, that we can know what you have done for us, the greatest message of all time. And we can know that who the sun sets free is free indeed. Lord, I pray that you, would, that you would take away my thoughts and ideas and that it would be your words speaking through me this morning. I pray that you would bless everyone here as we listen and as we continue to meditate on these words and that through this time and through this week, that you would be growing us into the people you made us to be and forming and shaping us according to your will and character. In your name we pray, O oh God. Amen. So last week, Pastor John started us off with a confession. I also have a bit of a confession to make. I once dented a Mercedes on prom night. <laughs> so, as many of you know, I grew up in Moncton and went to Moncton High School. So there's a beautiful spot in the middle of the city called Victoria Park, where parents and students were going to take pictures right before prom. So my date and I are driving around the side streets looking for a spot to park, and I see an open space on the other side of the road from me. As I'm doing a three-point turn and backing up, I hear and feel a nice, big thud. As I'm sure you can imagine, my face drops. I probably went about as white as a ghost, and I started praying out loud, God, please, please, please let them not be damaged as I was pulling into the space. So I get out to check, 
And of course, my parents' 2005 Highlander is completely fine, not a scratch on it. But then I go to the other side of the road, and there is a good dinner plate-sized dent in the side of this Mercedes. What's probably worst of all is that the dent crossed over the gap between the driver's door panel and the passenger's door panel, so both were damaged. And to top it all off, after a few minutes of me standing around wondering what to do, a patrol car comes by, and a woman living nearby who had seen the whole thing happen waves them down to come and talk to me. Now, thankfully, my parents, the police, and the owner of the vehicle, who I later found out was the dad of another graduating student, were all very understanding. But for the rest of that evening, no matter how hard I tried to put what I'd done out of my head, I kept thinking to myself, I am dead when the owner finds out. <laughs> Have you ever had a moment like this? A moment when you've said to yourself, oh no, now I've done it. Maybe it wasn't from denting a car, but maybe it was from accidentally breaking some sort of other expensive object. Or, on a more serious note, maybe it was from accidentally hurting another person with a word or an action that you instantly wished you could take back. Throughout the Bible, we find a number of these, oh no, now I've done it moments. Probably the most famous is, well, the original when the first humans were tempted to believe that God was trying to hold them back from some new level of knowledge or awareness. And what's tragic and ironic is that in trying to reach beyond God's design for them, they instead fall so far short of it. Instead of reaching enlightenment, they instead become ashamed of their nakedness and they hide from God as a result. Another famous example comes from the night when Jesus was betrayed and arrested. Peter, one of Jesus' closest disciples, had followed him to the courtyard of the high priest's house. And as he waited through the night to see what would happen, several people came up and recognized Peter as one of Jesus' disciples. He denied it each time, even going so far as to invoke a curse on himself if he was lying. The moment that he had denied knowing Jesus for the third time, he heard a rooster crow. Suddenly, Peter remembered that Jesus, his Lord, his great teacher, and his best friend, had predicted that he would do this very thing, and he wept bitterly. Today, however, we're going to look at a moment from the life of Isaiah, one of the major prophets of the Old Testament. Now, oftentimes today when we hear the word prophet, we think of kind of a fortune teller or someone else who can predict the future. Now, the prophets of the Bible did often speak about the future, but that actually wasn't their main role. A prophet in the Old Testament was someone sent by God during a time when Israel was rebelling against their partnership or their covenant with him, to call them back into faithful relationship with and obedience to him. 
Now, as we read the prophetic books of the Bible, not only do we get to hear their warnings about God's righteous judgment and their messages about his hope and salvation and deliverance, but we also get to hear about these life-changing visions that many of them experienced, and we get insight into who the prophets were as people. Today's text contains both. We're going to start off with Isaiah 6, verses 1 to 5, and then a few minutes later, we'll jump back in with verses 6 to 8. Let's read God's word. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. And, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Let's pause there for a moment and get some background to Isaiah's vision. Now, like all Israelite men at this point, Isaiah would have grown up hearing, discussing, meditating on, and memorizing the Old Testament, and especially the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. It's actually difficult to exaggerate just how much these laws and stories would have been the foundation for Isaiah's life and the lens through which he would see the world. It was actually fairly common at this point for young Israelite boys to have the entire Torah memorized by age eight. Now, I don't know if I had five verses of the Bible memorized at age eight, let alone five good-sized books. Now, because of this, Isaiah would have been extremely familiar with God's covenant with and calling upon his people. He would know of how God had called Abram, the father of all Israelites, out of his country to go and become a nation of blessing for the world. In Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3, we read that the Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. God's blessing on Abram and his descendants wasn't just for their sake alone. It was so that the entire world would come to know and see and experience him through them. Isaiah would also know of how Abram's great-grandson, Joseph, saved the entire country of Egypt from a five-year famine. 
Now, this started off with Joseph being sold into slavery by his own brothers. But when Joseph was reunited with them, he forgave them and said, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Isaiah would know of how as the Israelites continued to live in Egypt, eventually the new pharaohs forgot how God had used Joseph to save them. And they made the Israelites slaves in Egypt for 400 years. But yet God called and empowered Moses to lead his people out to the land that he had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Isaiah would know of how God made his covenant with the people of Israel at Mount Sinai and taught them to be a nation of justice and mercy and worship who would embody his will and character to the nations around them. Now, unfortunately, the people of Israel rebelled and did not hold up their end of the covenant, leading to them wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. But then God brought the next generation of Israelites into the promised land under the leadership of Joshua. And those are just some of the highlights. Isaiah would have had this beautiful and glorious vision of the kind of nation under God that Israel was called to be. And then he would look around him and see the kind of nation that it had actually become. Now, we don't know exactly how old Isaiah was when he had this vision, but the first verse of his book says that he prophesied during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Now, the year that Uzziah died would be around 740 or 739 B.C., And this was about 175 years after the nation of Israel had split into two because of the cruelty of King Rehoboam, the grandson of David. There was now the northern kingdom, which was still called Israel, and the southern kingdom of Judah, where Isaiah lived. Now, in 1 and 2 Kings, you can read, short summaries of the reigns of each of these rulers. Although although Uzziah and a few kings before him were listed as doing what was right in the eyes of the Lord, the problem was that they hadn't removed the altars to various false gods that were widespread throughout Judah, allowing idolatry to run rampant across the nation. On top of that, as pointed out by Isaiah and several of his fellow prophets, the the kings and the wealthy upper class of both Judah and Israel had forsaken their calling to uphold justice and fairness and dignity and instead had begun oppressing and exploiting their nations. Now, these problems had become so bad that in Isaiah chapter 1, verses 11 to 15, God essentially says to Judah that their acts of worship had become meaningless to him, and he was no longer listening to them. 
He was essentially saying, don't bother offering sacrifices for my forgiveness if you're not going to live like a people who have been forgiven. Don't bother organizing festivals in my name if you're not going to live that name out among each other and among the nations. Now, all of this to say that Isaiah all around him sees a giant gap between the way things are meant to be and the way that they actually are. The kind of gap that seems impossible to bridge and leaves you wondering if your voice will be heard on the other side. The kind of gap where no matter how many times someone explains to you how it was formed, you still shake your head and wonder, how could this have happened? The kind of gap whose sheer size and depth leave it in the back of your mind no matter how hard you try to ignore it. And into this gap, God speaks. Isaiah finds himself standing at the entrance to God's heavenly temple, where the king of kings is served by six-winged angels called seraphim. Now, these seraphim are quite possibly some of the holiest and most powerful created beings in existence, blessed to serve in God's very throne room. And yet even they cover their faces and feet in humility. And they are in such awe that all they can say over and over again is holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Isaiah is understandably terrified at this vision. He knows that the gap between what should be and what is isn't just a problem out there with other people. No, it is very personal to him. He recognizes that he has no place standing before the throne of a holy God. Now I want to take a moment to ask you all something. Who here has ever heard someone say something along the lines of, oh, I can't go to church, I would catch on fire, or the building would collapse, or I would get struck by lightning. Now, if you feel comfortable raising your hand for this, who here has felt that way themselves at some point? Take a moment to look around at everyone else raising their hands. Now, I won't ask you to raise your hands for this, but maybe there's even someone here today who feels that way right now, who came into church or is watching online thinking like, okay, I'll go, but I better get out the fire extinguisher just in case. Now, if that's you here today, I want to say a few things specifically to you. First of all, if the reason why you feel that way is because of something that someone said or did or an experience you had at church, I'm sorry. We're sorry. There's no excuse for that. And I hope and pray that you will experience the reality of God's love and forgiveness. Second of all, you're not alone. 
Hopefully you got a chance to look around and see everyone else who has felt that way at some point. Not to mention the fact that Isaiah, God's prophet, has the same sort of reaction himself here. Third is that you do have part of the story. God's holiness and perfect justice are very real qualities about him. Another prophet named Habakkuk, who also lived in Judah, cried out to God that your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. And when Habakkuk says this, you know, it's not like sin is some sort of barrier or sickness to God so he can't get near it. No, it's that sin can't be in God's presence for the same reason that microbes can't survive inside an autoclave. God's holiness is part of the story, but it's not the whole story. Let's pick back up in Isaiah chapter 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, here, I, here am I, send me. Now, before we go any further, I just wanted to mention something really cool here. So, as I'm sure many of you know, each Sunday during both services, our children's pastor, Nikki, and her team of amazing volunteers run an awesome children's ministry. Now, they've been in a series called Messengers, and I didn't realize this until I had already picked my text for this morning, but you'll never guess what their memory verse is. Isaiah 6, verse 8, Here am I, send me. Now that is not a coincidence. Isaiah goes through a radical and indeed life-transforming shift here. Before, he understood God's holiness and his sinfulness, along with the sinfulness of his people. And he knows that those two things do not go together. And so his reaction is to say, Woe to me, I am ruined. But then Isaiah gets to see both God's holiness and God's grace. His guilt is taken away and his sin atoned for. And so his response to God's call is to passionately volunteer, here I am, send me. Isaiah moves from fear to love, from helplessness in the face of God's holiness to humble submission to the Father's will, from condemnation to commission. Now, I love what Dr. Raymond C. Orton Jr. from Emmanuel Church comments about this verse. The remedy of grace is personally applied. God's holiness and glory now redemptively enter Isaiah's experience. Through the seraph, the angel, God declares the remedy for Isaiah's sin to be sufficient and instantly effective. 
Now Isaiah is qualified to proclaim the only hope of the world, the overruling grace of God. Just like Abram's blessing, and in fact, just like all of God's blessings, Isaiah's forgiveness isn't for him alone. It's so that his people of unclean lips and all nations through them will come to hear God's message through him. Now, Isaiah knows that this path won't be easy. Being a prophet is not the path to popularity or affluence. But if there is a God who is this holy and this gracious, what else can Isaiah do except proclaim his word to all those around him? Now, a minute ago, I compared sin being in God's presence to microbes being inside an autoclave. Just in case anyone doesn't know what an autoclave is, it's a type of machine that is used for a few different applications, but I'm specifically talking about medical autoclaves here. So it's a machine that is used in hospitals and other medical facilities to sterilize surgical equipment. What happens is the nurses or the other staff will get these tools covered in blood and other fluids and, and bodily parts, and first they'll scrub them off by hand. Then they'll put them through a washing machine, and the tools look clean, but there are still microbes living on them that can cause disease. And so they'll be put in an autoclave, which heats them up to kill any remaining microbes. Now, let me phrase that in a different way. What does an autoclave do to surgical instruments? It purifies them in a way that nothing and no one else can, so that they can be used to bring healing. It purifies them in a way that nothing and no one else can so that they can be used to bring healing. What did God do with Isaiah here? He purified him in a way that nothing and no one else could so that he could declare God's message to the people of Judah. What did God do when Adam and Eve first sinned against him? He made them clothes to cover up their shame. And even in the midst of pronouncing judgment on them, he, he predicted a day when one of their descendants would defeat the serpent who had tempted them to sin. What did Jesus do when Peter denied knowing him three times? After his resurrection, he commissioned Peter to feed his flock, and he fulfilled his promise to make Peter the rock upon which his church would be built. What did Jesus, now ascended into heaven, do when Paul came to realize that he was persecuting the very Son of God? He made Paul the leader in the mission to share the gospel with the Gentiles. Now, what does God do when we come before him aware of our sin and his holiness, but also trusting in his goodness and grace? He shows himself faithful to forgive and mighty to save, that we may declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. 
So I'll invite Pastor John to come back up on stage. But if you're here this morning and you've only known or experienced part of the story about God, my hope and my prayer is that you will come to see the full story. That you won't just know about or hear about God's redeeming grace, but that you will actually see it active in your own life. Will you run into the Father's arms, knowing that the same God who is holy, 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 and whose glory fills the earth, also has grace upon grace to say that your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for?